It's time for Hall of Fame broadcaster Al Bernstein to interact with some of the most fascinating big-name guests from the world of boxing and well beyond. Here's Al. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. On this edition, as my special guest, we'll have Chris Mannix, who, of course, uh, has been a terrific writer at Sports Illustrated and uh, is a fine broadcaster with his own podcast and doing the boxing on DAZN, uh, the uh, platform that does so much uh, terrific boxing these days. And I got a chance to talk to Chris about basketball, about boxing, about broadcasting. And here's my chat with Chris Mannix. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to visit with me. Uh, you are a multifaceted guy who I'm anxious to talk about several topics with. Uh, everybody knows, of course, about your uh, uh, great work with the NBA as well as boxing. My two favorite sports, by the way. So I'm, I'm uh, like you, I'm, I'm more than interested in both of them. And just for full disclosure, we're having this conversation just before the NBA Finals is going to end. So we, we cannot tell you exactly who won it, but we can talk in general about it. In fact, that's the very first thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, in, in covering the NBA so often, you know, we don't, there is not a variation in who plays for the championships, who plays in the final four, if you will. We had four teams this year that were very new to, uh, in recent years, to uh, playing for a championship. Is that overall beneficial to the league? It seems to me like it would be. Yeah, I think the NBA, and I've had several conversations with uh, Adam Silver about this over the years, they crave that NFL style parody. They mm -hmm. want, you know, 10 teams to enter the playoffs, believing they have a legitimate chance to win a championship. And really in the last two decades, the NBA has been defined by super teams, whether right. it was the Lakers in the early aughts, you fast forward to Miami, Golden State, you know, Cleveland kind of was one, at least when it came to the Eastern Conference. Um, those are still going to exist. I mean, Brooklyn's got one that you know could emerge very rapidly uh, beginning next season. But, you know, the NBA loves this. And even though the ratings are down from a couple of years ago, because, you know, look, fans like super teams. They watch either to watch them win or to root against them to lose. Even though the ratings are down, the NBA will take that trade off. They, they want to they, they hopefully establish something where teams like Phoenix and Milwaukee are competing for a championship every single year. In other words, if it's, you know, Utah against Brooklyn next year, I think the NBA would be ecstatic. Yeah, so they they're, they're playing the long game as opposed to the short game. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um you are in your covering of the NBA, uh which you've done for a long time for uh Sports Illustrated, you've seen um Differences in the play, uh, the way teams play on the court and the way they handle things off the court. On the court, what is the biggest change you've seen during the, the, this time when you've covered, you've covered since for at least 17, 18 years, uh, the NBA? What's the biggest change you've seen on the court in the style of play? I mean, offensive explosion is the easy answer. I mean, that goes back to the late 1990s when the NBA took, you know, literal measures to legislate out the physicality right. from the game that gave birth to uh, more high scoring games. And, you know, really in the last 10, 15 years, you know, with the emergence of the likes of Steph Curry and 
Trey Young, who is a byproduct of Steph Curry. Like you're seeing right. this new generation That's true. Of, of three-point shooters that just bomb away from anywhere on the court at any time uh, during the game. I mean, that's that's the biggest uh, the biggest shift where just three-point shooting, you know, NBA coaches will tell you they like three shots in games, a three-pointer, a layup, or a free throw. Like the mid-range game that, you know, people grew up watching Michael Jordan yeah. use and even – uh, a younger generation watching Kobe Bryant use at a high level. It's not in the game anymore. And that's because coaches don't want it in the game anymore. They don't see the mid range jumper as a high percentage shot. They'll take, you know, a, a lightly contested three over an open two, probably every single day. We have this uh, discussion, you know, it's like a, uh, like I have friends that we get together every Tuesday night at the, uh, one of the bars here. Most of them are musicians and music people that I do my music performances with, but they're super sports fans. And we talk about sports and the changing nature. Baseball always gets a large portion of the discussion, but the NBA is in there also for the very things that you talked about, uh, that when people run down on a fast break, the two people on the wing, and of course we were all taught to play this way, weren't we? You go to the basket, but that is nothing like what happens now. Both, or if, if you have a three-man fast break, fast break, one or both of those men that don't have the ball are going to go to the three-point line. Yeah, they'll space. I mean, that's just the, the way the game is played. And, you know, it's, it's being taught that way at an AAU level now. It's being taught that way or played that way at a college level. And the second you get into the NBA, you know, you, you, you talk about changes. I mean, three-point shooting amongst big men is another big change. Amazing, I mean, yes. You know, you watch these NBA finals and you see Brooke Lopez, you know, shooting like three or four three-pointers every single game. Brooke yeah. Lopez, early in his career, barely shot threes. He just he recognized the terrain that you have to be a three-point shooter at five positions now, and he adapted. He learned. Marc Gasol is another great example of it. Someone that didn't shoot threes early in his career and just developed it. Nowadays, uh, it's it's few and far between the number of big men that are just complete non-threats from the three-point line. And if you are, you better be like a Rudy Gobert, where you have other attributes that right. that make you invaluable to be on the floor. Yeah, it's fascinating. That always changing. Well, one sport that uh, changes some, but uh, I think it's probably the one sport where people say it changes the least is the sport of boxing, one that you are uh, very very involved with. Um, you first a question to you as a broadcaster. You have done more television boxing uh, in recent years than, than you ever did before. Is it as you expected it to be uh, being involved in, in boxing broadcasts, or is there some fact, facet of it that is surprising to you? Oh, doing the job that you've done for many years that I, I watched all the time, but Max Kellerman did for many years. Uh, it, I've done a lot of interviewing, right? Like I've worked right. for a lot of networks, whether it's NBC, Epics, you know, sure. a lot of networks that hired me to be an interviewer. This, this job with this tone is the first time they've given me an opportunity to call fights. And that is remarkably challenging because, you know, I, it's good. And you work with, with Abner and you work with Polly before. So working with boxers makes it, makes it a little bit easier because you don't have to try to analyze kind of every punch or every movement you let, or I let, in this case, Sergio Mora uh, do that for me. And, you know, trying to add context is is really my, I view as my sole responsibility. And it, it's definitely challenging. It's it's a lot different than just sitting there ringside and preparing questions uh, for a post-fight interview than, you know, sitting there and, and trying to, 
to come up with something smart to say <laughs> in those moments in between the action. It does lend itself to some incredibly bonehead moments. I mean, we've all had them, right? Like I had mine. <laughs> it's live TV. <laughs> I did. Like I, I, I'll tell you that and I've said this before, but like the, the Anthony Joshua, Andy Ruiz fight, like, I went into it thinking Anthony Joshua was absolutely going to knock Andy Ruiz out. And I've spent like a couple of days thinking about what would my line be if Anthony Joshua knocks down Andy Ruiz. And sure enough, in the third round, he knocks him down. I spit out. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. And sure enough, Andy Ruiz turns around and knocks Andy Ruiz down. I was forced to eat that quote out for for i'm still eating that quote i mean actually it was funny i actually used it again for joshua against pulev i just said i said brian kenny was working the broadcast with me and i said you know joshua knocked down pulev and i go let's try this again brian anthony joshua is a composed <laughs> and ferocious finisher unfortunately uh he did finish that fight they, they those those lines hang on your neck like an albatross uh, you know it's funny you're saying that i of course i spent my the first oh uh, 25, 30 years, 25 years of my career as being part of two-man booths where I was doing the sole analyst. And then three-man booths with a boxer became more um, uh, more prevalent, and I was involved in, in them. And I had to slightly alter my role a little bit from the previous time. And I've often said that finding your, your, um, your spot as a quote-unquote uh, uh third, I'm going to say third man, but I'm going to say in that role on the broadcast is difficult because you, you are, what you need to do then is make uh, an anecdotal comments and informational comments along with, uh, that are not being done by the play-by-play -play guy and still make uh, comments about style that are not being done by the boxer or the athlete. Yeah. And one thing I try to do is just, you know, bring reporting to that right. kind of position. Like, for it's example, right when one of the, the fights we had recently that I called was Sullivan Barrera against Gilberto Ramirez. Um, and you know, during fight week, I gave Jesse Hart a call. You know, Jesse Hart had fought both those guys very recently, in fact. And I asked him sort of how he saw this fight right. kind of playing out. And then on the air, I would regurgitate what Jesse Hart told me. So I, I just try to, you know, I, I always always want to call what I see. And, and you know this, like at, as a reporter, you kind of have instincts to, to see things. And I tend to see injuries pretty quickly. Or if something happens, I, I, I've had I've developed kind of a knack for doing that uh, on the fly. But more than anything, I just I want to be able to say something that isn't necessarily what you're seeing, but what other people aren't able to get um, anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, you uh, you mentioned the fact that, of course, your forte is interviewing and you do it on your podcast. You've done it on radio. You do it on uh, DAZN. You do it in many different uh, platforms. And some people think boxers are not interesting interviews. And maybe some aren't. But I think boxers are really, many boxers are very interesting people to interview. Do you agree? I completely agree. Um, Post-fight I mean, it's, it's, it's wild with post fights. Like you interview yeah. a guy, it's like you're interviewing a guy that just was in a car crash and you yeah. ask him if he wants Precisely. to go do it again. Like it's, it's like, you know, it, it's sort of surreal that, you know, these guys are not forced, but are you know put in the position where they have to speak after maybe 12 right. rounds of a war. Um, but boxers in general, absolutely. I mean, nobody, nobody wakes up as a child and says, I want to box. Like, this is yeah. not how it works. Like they, 
are generally either forced into boxing or do it as a pathway to a better life, which lends itself to some unbelievable stories. I mean, you've covered Floyd for a long time. Like his story is remarkable uh, coming out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, all he went through with his father and, and climbing up the ranks. I mean, most boxers have those stories like the Calvin Brocks of the world, the boxing yeah. bankers are few and far between. Like most of these guys, you know, come from the seventh circle of hell. And in addition, they don't have teammates to protect. So it's right. like, they're willing to give you kind of the unvarnished truth. And if you spend enough time with guys, uh, you'll, you'll get a really compelling story. That's why I, I, you know, every, you know when I criticize boxing and some of the things that go on in it, it's just because I want to see it surge again. I want to sure. see it back into the mainstream. So my bosses at Sports Illustrated will be like, huh, you know, that's an interesting fighter. Let's do six pages on him. Because right now, you know, you have to beg and scrap to get anything published in the magazine. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's been, that's, I mean, looking back at boxing, going all the way back to the, I always talk about the nine, the late 90s as being when boxing started to step into this abyss of media coverage where mainstream sports media just kind of stopped covering the sport uh, and did so for most of the time until I'm going to say recently when it's been a little bit better. And part of that is because boxing came back on over-the-air networks, and there were other platforms like The Zone and other places uh, for it. But, but yeah, trying to pitch a, a boxing story is not always the easiest thing to... Uh, it's, it's funny, Al. Like, I, I had this conversation recently with, uh, with Jerry Eisenberg, who we, you both know well. Oh, sure, yeah. And, you know, I was talking to Jerry about kind of what press row looked like, you know, in his early days, and he's yeah. describing all these luminaries, these, these great writers that were covering these like heavyweight right. title fights. And that continued the seventies and eighties and into the 1990s. Right. Uh, I'm glad for the people that are, you know, are employed in the boxing space. There are some excellent boxing journalists out there. Yeah. Keith Eidek, Mike Coppinger, Lance Pugmire, great guys that are doing it, but you just don't, these are more off, you know, in some cases, some cases, boxing specific sites, which is, you know, great for the boxing fan right. to see coverage saturated like that, but to draw in new fans, whether you like mainstream media or not, you need the New York Times, the Washington Post, Sports Illustrated to be invested in bringing you these stories to, to start telling some of their tales. Yeah, and it's incumbent on the mainstream sports media. I think the, to, to, of course, listen, people have pre-supposed uh, ideas about boxing, and I think it's important for the mainstream sports media to, okay, understand uh, boxing's failings. And uh, but also understand the, the nature of the sport that that makes it kind of special. And um, and your point's well taken. Some of the reason to point out the failings of the sport is for it to be maybe uh, end up being better. You have uh, done a lot of work with Canelo in, in recent time. Um, I should point out that for, for a while, Al, Canelo, I think it was like the fir entire first year Canelo was calling me Max. So you know, it, was, it was like for, I wasn't sure at first if he was saying Mannix because you know you can you make that mistake. But there was a there was at least once that I heard him say thank you, Max. Like and That's now perfect. we're now we've been doing it so long together, like four or five now, fights. Now he knows you're Mannix. Yeah, yeah, Max. he knows I'm Chris now. Like I mean, yeah, he's been very Chris. very good. Okay, to but I like that. I think it was the very first fight. It was Kovalev actually. It was his second fight or was something it? like that. That he was uh, that <laughs> I got a, a Max uh, during some kind of interview that I did with that him. That is. I, I, I see that as progress, though, that you, know, <laughs> you, know, you have your own identity. Uh, he's become, you know, the, I mean, obviously he's become the face of boxing to a great degree. And uh, I've 
done a lot of fights with about of, of Canelo as well. And uh, and he's a fascinating guy because he began the sport early, has had three or four different phases in the sport. So you can't even you can't say this is the definitive Canelo or that's the definitive Canelo. He's been a living organism and a changing organism through his whole career. Yeah, and you're still seeing improvements, even at yes, now 31 years old. It's it's remarkable. I mean, sometimes when you have a fighter that, you know, even you go back to 2013, 14, when he was fighting Mayweather and Austin Trout and Aris Landing yeah. Lara, like if he had just stayed that fighter, he'd probably be really successful. I sure. mean, he'd, he'd have a, a strong career, but, you know, the evolution of him, specifically defensively. I mean, you were calling a lot of those, yes. those early fights that he was in. I don't think he was yes. the same defensive guy in the early no. days that he turned into in recent years, head movement, just in and out. He's just mm -hmm. so difficult to hit clean. Even when you do hit him clean. I mean, I saw Golovkin do it when I was watching his fights and I saw Daniel <laughs> Jacobs do it once against Canelo. You hit him. He rolls with these punches really well. So even if it looks like on TV, he's yeah. getting tagged, you watch the replay and he's rolling with that punch. So it's not the kind of impact that the opponent is really looking for. I mean, his, Maybe it's the influence of Eddie Reynoso. Maybe it's just a natural progression for a supremely talented guy. But his growth defensively has been really remarkable the last five years. Yeah, I agree with that. It's probably the most significant. And when you when you attach to that the fact that he has <clears throat> a rock solid chin and doesn't seem able to be hurt, um, that you know, which is by the way shocking. Like Al, like I was there for Jose Miguel Cotto when he buckled him. You know, it was a 10, 11 years ago yeah, his first right. fight in the That's U.S. Right. And I remember thinking like, all right, well, maybe this is another kind of golden boy thing where right. they signed a really popular guy that looks good, that he's not, but he's not going to be an elite level fighter. I, I had my doubts after that Jose sure. Miguel Cotto fight for sure. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And he, and he did turn into this. And, and now we're all awaiting what his next move is. And boxing seems to turn, not all of boxing, but certainly that a couple of weight divisions turn on what Canelo ends up wanting to do. Uh, your opinion, I'll, I'll, I'll just let you go with this. Uh, uh, your, your, your opinion on what's the most fun for Canelo in the near future that you see? Well, it, it sounds like Caleb Plant's the guy. And there have been some reports on Tuesday that, that there was a deal inching towards the finish line, which makes sense. It's the fight that Canelo publicly stated he absolutely wanted after beating Billy Joe Saunders. Whatever we think about the belts, it's it's an achievement to become the undisputed champion in a four belt yeah. era. So it sounds like that's what we're barreling towards. Um, no problem with that fight. I don't, you've watched a lot of plant as well. I don't know what you think, but I don't give him much of a chance. Like, you know, I, <clears throat> excuse me. You just, it's really hard to go from C and D level opponents who Caleb plant has been facing, you know, Mike Lee, Vincent Feigenboots and Caleb Truax to go to Canelo. Like he just, you just can't do it. Even you know, Billy Joe Saunders uh, had some decent wins on his resume, but nothing right. on the Canelo level. And, and you could see the difference there when, when the going got tough in those later rounds. So, I mean, all credit to Plant. He's got the title and he's a world champion, but that's a fight I, I would put a lot of money on Canelo to ultimately win. Hmm. The fight I'm still most interested in now is the third fight with Golovkin. And you know, yeah. people kind of roll their eyes at that sometimes. Be like, well, it's over with. Golovkin's almost 40, yada, yada, yada. All the, fine, I, I get that. But we have not seen a definitive outcome in this. No, fight. true. The, the first fight was 
<clears throat> I there was Golovkin. Golovkin should have won that fight. Forget the Adelaide Bird scorecard. There was that other scorecard that had the seventh round scored for uh, Canelo, but it should have gone Golovkin. He should have gotten the win in that fight. Um, I had no problem with the decision in, in the second fight. I had Golovkin winning 115-113, but if you go the other way, no issue whatsoever. That was a, a very tough fight uh, to score. But, you know, there's been no clear-cut winner here. So maybe Canelo goes out and beats up on the older fighter. I can see that. Golovkin hasn't looked great in recent fights, specifically against Sergey Derbenchenko uh, last year. But that is still, to me, a compelling fight. And when you're, when you're trying to attract kind of a mainstream audience, you know, Al, we're in the weeds on this, and we know, you know, Golovkin's a little bit older, and we know that Canelo would be a heavy favorite, but the average fan doesn't. The average fan's <clears> like, oh, Canelo Triple G, no, Canelo Triple right. G, Canelo Triple G. I saw the first two fights. Let's see the third. So right. I, I'm, I'm all for him having the biggest fights out there and planned as a huge fight because of the belt, but the most marketable fight still for him is a third fight with Gennady Golovkin. Interesting. Well, we'll see if that if that happens. I know, uh, um, uh, and perhaps you'll be on hand there to offer your – uh, expertise and uh, do some interviews surrounding it and all the rest as you uh, do expertly. And Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit. And um, uh, folks need to check out every platform that they can find you on. And they are many and varied, as I mentioned at the beginning of this. Hopefully next time we talk out, it'll be before Castaño Charlo 2, because I'm ready. Yeah, ready yeah, we would. <laughs> Speaking of undisputed titles, yes, we would like to. We didn't quite get uh, to an undisputed title, a, um, a very close fight, one scorecard that came from the planet Mercury, uh, uh, as often is the case in boxing, but a very. Well, let me ask you, since you're making it up before I let you go. Did you think that was a close fight uh, by uh, uh, Charlo and Castaño? I haven't looked, revisited again. Uh, I leaned toward Castaño maybe to win. I didn't score every round, but uh, I didn't think it was a blowout either way. No, I don't think it was a blowout. I, I was kind of dual watching. They had game five of the finals on, on Saturday, so I was kind of had both things going at yeah. once. I went back and rewatched it uh, afterwards. And I had 16-12 for Castaño, and I didn't think it was any closer than that, it wasn't a blowout for sure, but 16-12 yeah. Castaño felt about right, especially okay. since I thought he really controlled most of the first half of the fight, except for that second round. It is, right. I mean, look, boxing judging is, is such a complicated conversation because there is no governing body. Every state does things differently. Yeah, exactly. It's so, it's so obnoxious. But can we all get on the same page where you and I can both name the top four judges in boxing. Every yeah. promoter I talk to lists the same names. It's like, it's Weisfeld who was on that card in Texas. It's Dave Moretti in Nevada. It's Glenn Feldman uh, in Connecticut. You can throw Julie Letterman in, uh, in New York. The, the, people know who the top judges are. Why don't these states just use them? Let's start with the big fights, the marquee fights. Right. And like, let's solve that judging problem before we have to go down to these undercard fights that might be getting uh, problematic because <laughs> there are bad judges on them. I mean, you... That was a tremendous fight. That was a, I mean, I loved that fight from start to finish. I was gripped at the very end to see if Charlo could muster something to knock yeah. him out, especially when you got Derek James in his corner saying over and over again, like you need a knockout uh, yeah. to go and win. I was captivated by it. But what did I talk about on my DAZN show on Tuesday? Nelson Vasquez and the judging issue in boxing. Yeah. Like we right. don't need judges overshadowing big fights, Al. Boxing has enough problems as it is. No, I agree. That adds to the that that makes it a makes it a bigger issue. Well, hopefully they'll do it again, and we'll we'll get a, a what we think is a, a definitive um, decision on it. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for visiting with me. Best of luck. Anytime, Al. 
So, Chris uh, Mannix, a man who has made the transition from uh, the printed word or the digital word, as as it, as it, it were as it would be, uh, to uh, broadcasting in many respects, both in the podcasting and uh, streaming and television. Uh, platforms. And uh, it was fun to get a chance to chat with him about uh, the uh, affairs of the day in boxing and basketball and uh, other stuff as well. And uh, you get to ask me questions on this show, at Al Bernstein uh, on Twitter. And uh, the man that will help me answer all those questions, my co-host Trip Mitchell. Hi, Trip. How are you? I'm good, Al. And when you made the transition from being a writer to a broadcaster, it was pretty abrupt. They didn't send you away to TV commentating school, did they? No, I I uh, I'd done a, some a little bit of broadcast work in Chicago, but not that much. And I found myself now. Granted, back in those days, it was an embryonic network, but I was on the ESPN fights all of a sudden. Uh, the kind of city, you know, got in there just to pinch hit, kind of. And, you know, and it uh, it worked. But, yeah, I didn't have a, 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 a long transition time for sure. So uh, but most of the skills that you learn as a uh, as a writer help you in broadcasting. Was it uh, did you immediately know on your first fight this would be something I'd really like to do? Yeah, I could tell immediately if I, I knew that if I could keep doing this, it would be uh, really great. And uh, luckily I was able to. And uh, another fellow Chicago and Brent Musburger uh, went from print to work with CBS, and now he's in Vegas doing uh, his thing. Did you get to know him? And and was that yeah? Kind of I didn't fun really know Chicago Brent guy? that well, actually, uh, in Chicago. But I I knew people that knew him when he was a, a newspaper uh, guy, uh, and he's a little older than me, so he he was like a half a generation ahead of me. But uh, but he was a very uh, well liked uh, newspaper guy in Chicago. And then he got to do the sports news in Chicago. And that's what pushed him to uh, the neck, the network. Fantastic. Well, let's get to our questions. And the first one's a great one. Darren O'Hare writes, who are your top three greatest defensive boxer, boxers in the history of the sport? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, a couple of these names I think would be on anybody's list. Willie Papp, of course, uh, the great featherweight from days gone by who is rumored to have won a round without ever throwing a punch. I don't know how that's possible, <laughs> but they say it is true. It's plausibly true, I guess, uh, <laughs> that he made the guy miss so much that nobody noticed that he didn't, throw, he didn't uh, <laughs> land a punch. Uh, but he was, of course, a brilliant defensive fighter. Um, and then uh, Pernell Whitaker, who I uh, did some of his fights in the 80s, was just amazing. There was a fight against Santos Cardona that he he fought on ESPN that uh, and Santos Cardona was a, a really solid offensive fighter who was a good top solid contender and I mean I think Santos Cardona landed maybe 10% of his punches, you know, a ridiculously low amount and uh, Pernod Whitaker just made him miss everything. Pernod Whitaker, a brilliant defensive fighter. And the third one is Floyd Mayweather you know, who uh, has shown over his showed over his long career uh, that he was a defensive wizard. You know, a few guys had decent offensive nights against him, decent but not none great, and uh, and so he'd be my third pick. 
Okay. And uh, our second question, your thoughts uh, on the Crawford-Porter fight actually happening? And if it does, how do you see that fight going? Yeah, I think it probably will happen. You know, it's gone to purse bid. Uh, and and I, I have a feeling this is going to be one of those cases where we get a fighter from the top-ranked stable and the premier boxing channel uh, champions uh, sta stable that fight each other. And uh, I think it's a fascinating fight. You know, uh, Sean Porter performed really well against Errol Spence and did so by being kind of a boxer puncher. He boxed well and and also was able to land uh, some power shots pretty effectively as well. Sean Porter is undervalued by most people. Uh, he's a very tough customer. Even in his mid-30s now, he's he's really, really a good fighter. And of course, Crawford is heading to his mid-30s as well. Terrence Crawford is fantastic. You know what we don't know about Terrence Crawford, though? Honestly, we don't know how he functions against a really good fighter. And if Sean Porter isn't an A-level fighter, he's an A-minus-level fighter. So we're going to find out a little bit more about Terrence Crawford facing a welterweight who we know, uh, you know, I mean, he, Sean Porter's had a couple losses to Kel Brook and uh, Keith Thurman, very close losses that could have gone his way. Uh, but, you know, he's been able to compete. And, of course, the, the Spence loss, but very close again. All three of those fights were winnable for him and, and if you gave him the decision on any three of those, nobody could argue. So uh, I think it's going to be a very close and competitive fight. Uh, I think it's, it's it, you know, Crawford will go in the favorite for sure, uh, but not by a ton. And, uh, and I think it's going to be a real intriguing uh, fight because I think uh, Crawford may be surprised at some of Porter's boxing skills. But make no mistake, Terrence Crawford is a super skilled fighter. And uh, and it could be that he is absolutely the best of the lot. It's just that we I don't know it yet because we haven't seen him in against some of these top welterweights. But uh, we, if that fight happens, we will see it. And uh, I think it's going to be fascinating. Um, well, we appreciate you all sending in your questions to us. And uh, we'll get some more the next time. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the uh, visit we had with Chris Mannix. We want to thank him for uh, visiting with us. My thanks to Trip Mitchell, as always, and the folks at Let's Do Something Productions for making this show possible. We'll see you next time.